Hi, this is Tony. Today's episode is going to be all about the humanities with our special guest, Kate Mulvaney, who's going to talk about a speech she delivered at Curtin University in 2017. Before we start the show, I want to say thanks to my friends at Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados for continuing to support this project. Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados love the idea that speeches are a way of connecting people, just as food is a way of connecting people. And they are committed to the idea that that perfect avocado in your lunchtime brioche or your garden salad shouldn't be a seasonal thing. It should be an everyday of the year thing. So share in the joy of avocados. Put them at the top of your shopping list and find out more at lovemyavocados.com.au as well as on Instagram and Facebook. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. Lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we as a people will get to the promised land. With Tony Wilson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Speakola podcast. This is Tony Wilson, and we're back in lockdown here in Melbourne. A bit of a COVID spike, dampening many spirits, but hopefully, the speech today will be one to raise spirits. Our feature guest is Kate Mulvaney, who's an actor and a playwright, and she's won multiple awards in both those disciplines, including a Helpman Award for her performance as Richard III at the Sydney Opera House. But she's also won writing awards, uh, such as the Philip Parsons Award for Best Young Playwright for a play called The Seed. Kate has such a way with words. She's wonderfully eloquent. And she gave this speech on the humanities at Curtin University that is one of my favourites. And I thought this week would be a good week to feature it because in Australia, it feels as though the humanities are under attack somewhat. We've had the news here that the conservative Morrison government are going to more than double the cost of a humanities degree from 20000 to 42500 for a three-year arts degree. And for someone like myself who studied history at uni and did such eclectic courses as King Arthur, History and Legend, and Jewish Texts and Context. I remember doing a subject on Jewish humour where we did everything from the Talmud to Lenny Bruce to The Simpsons. And I felt very much as though those years built me, built my interest in history, built my interest in politics. And in fact, this website, Speakola, that's been my five-year passion, has been a return to that feeling of learning about the world. And making this site has taught me about the Bangladeshi independence movement and the anti-lynching movement in the US at the turn of the century and the civil rights movement and the history of feminism and, and what happened during the Japanese surrender in World War II and the great Richard Feynman's thoughts on nanotechnology in the 1960s. And it's just been this wonderful immersion in the humanities. And so... 
the decision by the government here in this country is a real slap in the face. And, and I look around the world and think what the world actually needs is more humanities and more encouragement of people to understand civics and society and history and politics. And then maybe you don't get the kind of idiotic campaigning that's going on, especially in the United States at the moment, Trumpism and a rejection of education and reason. When I came up with the idea of Speakola, I intended it to be somewhat apolitical. I wanted to run speeches, great speeches from all sides of politics over the course of human history, whether it's Fidel Castro on the left or Ronald Reagan on the right. But certainly we are pro-humanities, pro-learning, pro-understanding of history and human society. And so it seemed a good time to feature Kate Mulvaney and this wonderful speech about the humanities and learning and art and the imagination. For lovers of Australian theatre, Kate Mulvaney needs no introduction. In movies, you may have seen her in The Great Gatsby or in The Merger, written by Damien Callanan, who was our special guest on episode one of this podcast. And on the small screen, she's been on Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries and Secret City and most recently, opposite Al Pacino in Hunters on Amazon Prime, the story of Nazi hunters in the 1970s in America. But let's meet her, Kate Mulvaney, speaking to me from Sydney about her Curtin University commencement, Humans Doing. Speakola. Well, what a thrill to have one of Australia's great actors and playwrights on the podcast. Kate Mulvaney, are you there? I am, Tony. How are you? I'm very well in uh, diseased Melbourne. Um, I'm feeling <laughs> well, I'm pleased to say, um, and I hope you can avoid our lockdown fate. I'm hoping we do, but, you know, this is such an unpredictable uh, illness, isn't it? But sending sending every ounce of, uh, of safe cuddles to everyone in, in Melbourne, we're thinking of you up here. Well, obviously the arts are on hiatus a bit at the moment. Are you, are you working? I am working. Uh, the great thing about, obviously, artists is that we, uh, we're used to kind of being out of work every now and then, So, but we've always got something bubbling. We've always got something kind of stewing in our brains and in our hearts and in our guts. And so I've got, I've, um, I've got uh, some plays that I, I've been writing that have been commissioned by theatre companies, just fingers crossed that... These theatres still exist on the other side of all this, uh, but that's been taking up a, a fair bit of my headspace. Well, uh, well, I've got you on to talk about a wonderful speech, one of my favourites on the site, Speakola. Um, it's a commencement speech that you delivered at Curtin University. Um, it was a 2018 case? Yeah, yeah, it was 2018, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Uh, yes, it was. And I'd, I'd kind of flown in. I was living in LA at the time, actually. We were, and I got this phone call uh, saying, look, you've, we, we'd love you to do the commencement speech, but also we want to give you a doctorate and a, um, an honorary doctorate of letters. And it was also to become the patron of the Heyman Theatre at Curtin University, which is where I studied. And so that speech was made after a, uh, I think it was about an 18-hour plane trip. I was straight off the plane into those robes and the hat the Harry Potter kind of <laughs> uniform and and gave uh, the patronage speech and the commencement speech and then got back on the plane and went, on, went back to LA. 
I was very jet lagged during that speech. <laughs> it's funny to think that yeah, all those years ago you would have been a you know I think you mentioned in the speech you're sort of a cask wine drinking, uh, <laughs> seat of your pants studying kind of kid coming up through theatre and then here you are back as a doctor. It's all it's all quite amazing, isn't it? It was very strange. It was very strange. It was on Father's Day as well. I think I mentioned that in the speech and. It was my first Father's Day away from my dad. My dad had uh, passed away, I think, about eight months before that speech. And uh, I really missed him. And it was very strange being back in Western Australia and not having my dad in the audience. But the great thing was my mum and my sister were in the audience. And, and there were so many dads there with their children, you know, really proud dads and uh it, it was it was beautiful that this cask wine drinking that was that was my posh drink. I was normally like my dad, a bit of an emu export <laughs> fan. <laughs> so to be actually <laughs> to be actually you know back in Western Australia and and getting this honorary doctorate for a for a degree uh, and and through a university that I'm incredibly proud to represent was really um, was was really wonderful. In terms of coming up with a topic and something to say at a commencement, you obviously got that call to do the job. Um, what was the thought process from there? Oh, I, w- I was in LA actually. This is when I was in Los Angeles, and it was it was so funny because I was so surround. I was going to auditions every day, and we were living in a very LA part of LA, so I was surrounded <laughs> just by, um, I guess, an unrealness. And and I wanted to get real in the speech. I wanted to, I wanted to go back to these people uh, coming coming from kind of LA, where everyone's bronzed and big hair and blonde, and everything's a little bit fake. Everyone's lovely, but it's, we're just feeling a little bit fake at that time. And I wanted to go back and and remind myself and the people that I was speaking to that you can do it. You can come from a background like mine. Uh, where there was no art involved whatsoever and you can make and create a world for yourself and a career for yourself as an artist. And I guess that's where I really wanted to start. I was also really aware that I didn't want to be just someone kind of getting up there, some person that you've never heard of or never seen uh, and not explain my story and my own history. I wanted to give them a look at all of my vulnerabilities as well so that they uh, could really see the pathway that that was uh, affordable to them and, and they were able to take. So I had to get really honest in the speech and, and I'm, I, I think I did. <laughs> I think you did. I mean, it's, it's an it's a amazing story, an amazing personal story of, um, of a fantastic career but also the, the details of your young life that you, that you interwove were magnificent. Um, in terms of that kind of opening line that becomes – um, or that opening phrase that becomes important to the structure of the speech, the, the humans doing part. Yes. Um, do you remember that idea coming? Was that, was that early on in the thought process? Yeah, that was sort of the first thing I thought of. I, I, you know, we're often called the humanities, the uh, arts of the humanities, and I wanted to explore what that word meant. I'm a writer after all, and I, li- I love to pull apart words. I love to study etymology of words. And I love the words human beings. I just, I think that's a, it's a beautiful little heading that we all live under um, because it does have more than that. It's, it's an active word, you know, and I, I guess I wanted to make it even more active and, and I wanted to talk about humans doing and everything that that entails uh, when you are looking for a, a life in the arts Keeping in mind also that uh, all of those arts students or humanities students, they come under so many different 
headings. They, they, they live in so many different forms. So it's everyone from, like me, the theatre students to the architects, you know, to the historians. And they were, we were all, we're all in this beautiful melting pot of culture together. And I think it's really important that anyone who doesn't understand arts and humanities really does think about how vast it actually is and how many people it captures in its beautiful net. And they were all there, weren't they? And there was architects there and there were mm-hmm. uh, theatre students and, and you, had to, you had to cater for all writers, you had to cater for all these people. Can you describe mm-hmm. the room to us? It was so beautiful. It was this big um, kind of uh, – it, it was in the, uh, the New Perth sort of entertainment centre uh, exhibition centres, which didn't exist when I when I lived in Western Australia, but it was it was there. And beforehand, there were just so many bubbling, excited young people. Not just young; there were a lot of mature age students there too, uh, all dressed in their in their robes, uh, having lots. I, I remember beforehand, kind of walking in and 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 being asked. Can you take a photo of my daughter and I? Can you take a photo of my son and I? Can you take a daughter of my step, a photo of my stepdaughter and my? And it was, it was a, it was beautiful. It was like a big, massive family reunion, but we all came from different families, and there was pride. There was such pride in the room, and of course, my mum and my sister and my niece were there as well. And as I said, it was a bit sad because normally my dad would be there too. I'm probably drinking an emu export. <laughs> Um, but but instead it was, you know, because they were there as my special guests and I was very jet-lagged, I had these three magnificent women in my life sort of holding me up and, and it, it was much bigger than I expected. That morning I had given a, a speech to a smaller group of theatre arts students at the actual Heyman Theatre at Curtin and so I was sort of primed and ready to talk about the arts but just to expand it a little more and... It was really clear to me looking around that room that I was I was really glad that I had not just gotten up there and talked about acting but um, managed to talk about all of, all of the uh, the different jobs that those incredible, incredible artists and humanities students were about to take on. I thought you found that inclusivity by going to the word imagination, which is pa- perhaps the common denominator for so many <laughs> of the arts and, and you... And you talked about imagination, and you and you looked at what imagination wasn't, as well as what imagination was. Um, mm. You know that mm. that's a lovely part of the speech. It is, and it's an accessible part of the speech. I I um, obviously I studied the arts and humanities. I, I, I did theatre and script writing, uh, and imagination was a massive, massive part of 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 getting through. Whether that be actually telling a story, creating a story. Or if you've only got a budget of sixty-five dollars, <laughs> which we often only had yeah. for our productions, uh, our self-written productions, that we had to imagine, use our imaginations to go: How are we going to do this? How are we going to use it? And imagination, we, we all have it. We're all it's all it's accessible to every single one of us. Uh, and you don't need money to use your imagination, and you don't need a, a, a vast education. Um, to use your imagination, you have it inside you. And and that was something that was a common denominator that I could find in all of those, an incredibly diverse bunch of people that were in that audience in front of me. It's interesting, this whole question of imagination. I talk to kids about it when I go to schools and and all of our capacity to, to write stories and tell stories and make people laugh and make people sad and, you know, to share our lives. Um, 
do you mm. have a way of practicing imagination? Do you do you have a thing where you mm. force ideas? Um, what what's what's you, what would you what's your imagination trick? My imagination trick is stolen from someone else, <laughs> and that's from the playwright yeah. Sarah Kane. Uh, Sarah Kane, who was a magnificent young British playwright, who we unfortunately lost very very early, but she wrote uh, some in- incredible plays, very dark plays. Um, uh, Sarah Kane suffered from terrible mental illness, um, but her plays offer such hope as well. And one thing that she uh, used to do was drop a bomb. <laughs> and she literally does this in her play Blasted. And the story goes, and I hope I'm not getting this wrong because I've told it many times, but it's a really great story, that she was sort of halfway through writing Blasted. She got a bit overwhelmed, had a bit of writer's block, went and fell asleep in front of the television on the couch. And when she woke up, a, she woke up to a news report of a bomb that had gone off somewhere in the world. And she went back to her typewriter. She wrote on a typewriter and she wrote in the stage directions, a bomb drops. Now, before that point, this play was just written in our hotel room for two people. But by having a bomb drop, she allows a third person to walk through the destroyed wall and it, it sets the play off in a whole other direction. And although that's a very dark, dark play and it's a kind of a dark thing to say, drop a bomb, I do that. I go, what is the most crazy wild thing that could happen at this exact moment that is still authentic but will take the play or the character or the story in another direction. Um, it's it's kind of like turning a play or a text upside down and shaking it and see what change falls out of the pockets. And that's that's uh, my favourite part of um, my imagination. <laughs> and how often do you think of stupid ones that don't work with your drop bomb dropping? Like do you, do you find you often – Try to turn it, and you turn it, and it's suddenly ridiculous. There's or no, there's no. Is it sort of stupid, a one in ten thing? Never any stupid ones. If they don't work, you can always go back to the first one, or a, a, a kind of tendril of the stupid idea will still have some power to it. But any idea that I have, I put in a file uh, that says ideas, good ideas I haven't used yet. Even if I hate that idea at the time, I won't ever put it under, you know, that was a stupid idea. I'll always put it under a good idea that just doesn't fit in this play. And the amount of times in my life, I've been a playwright now for uh, 25 years, and I will often go back to plays that I wrote. I went back to a play that I wrote in, at Geraldton Senior uh, for my TE exam only two weeks ago for inspiration <laughs> um, and for a phrase that I knew I'd written in my TE exam but I couldn't remember what it was and I really wanted to use it and I I, um, I found it. So, yeah, I think there's no, there are no stupid ideas, only a file of potential good ideas for later. You talk about growing up in Geraldton in the speech um, mm. and it would be nice to expand on that here. Um, can you tell us about Geraldton, where it is and, and sure. what sort of a place it is? Well, Geraldton is, when I was there, it was about five and a half hours north of Perth. It's now, the roads have been um, made a little bit quicker now. But yeah, it's about 450 kilometres north of Perth in Western Australia. It's a mining, farming, uh, fishing, crayfishing, windsurfing town. Uh, It's a little bit kind of desert meets the wheat fields meets the sea is the best way to describe it. Uh, It's on Yamaji land has an incredible indigenous history 
It also has a, a really crazy uh, Dutch settlement history in that the, the Dutch kind of arrived on the West Australian coast and made their way onto, onto the land way before uh, the First Fleet did. So we've got that history. We've got the Batavia wreck just off Geraldton. The Batavia was a Dutch ship that sank uh, and then after it sank there was a mutiny after it sank (laughs) so there's this really kind of volatile violent history uh, to do with the Batavia an extensive Yamaji history and it's also a port town and so these stories and characters kind of blow in and out with the wind which is why I think Geraldton is often used as a basis uh, for so many Tim Winton stories Geraldton is mentioned it's where they start Cloud Street, it's where uh, the Shepherd's Hut uh, mentions uh, mentions Geraldton a lot. Randolph Stowe's Merry-Go-Round-the-Sea is based in Geraldton. It's got this, be- it's a beautiful, beautiful geography, and that's where I grew up. Um, I was also uh, very sick as a child. I was born with uh, renal cancer, which has been attributed to my father's exposure to uh, Agent Orange in the Vietnam War. That's the moment in the speech where you think, uh, what a amazing injection of the personal where you realize that <laughs> mm. this traumatic childhood um, has occurred and that you've come to theater and the arts and this life in the humanities via a very difficult first 10 years. I'm always fascinated by drafting stories and, and how young Australian men got to Vietnam in mm-hmm. the 1960s. What's, what's the story of your dad going? <laughs> Well, it's complicated, and yet in the it shouldn't be complicated, but it is. My dad was a ten pound pom, and he arrived in Australia just to see if he could uh, make it work over here. He got a a, a job on the roads building um, building roads for the main roads department in Western Australia, and then one day he got this letter saying, "You've got to go. You've you've been chosen to go and fight. Your numbers being pulled," and he didn't know what that meant. Like he was so new to this country. And his mates said, "Oh, you've been conscripted, mate." And he said, "Well, I don't want to, I don't want to go do that." And um, he got one of his friends to hit him and break his nose so he didn't have to go because he wanted to go home instead. He got conscripted again. <laughs> they said, "Nice try." And he went to. He actually started training. He went to Puckapunyal, and while he was in Puckapunyal, he got beaten up by a combi van full of hippies after he picked up a girl in a pub. They they broke his leg, uh, so he thought, oh, well, at least I got out of it again, and his leg healed, and he got conscripted again, and then his his uh, mates kind of went, just go, just go, mate, um, and Dad, he did tell the government, I want to go home, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not even Australian, I don't know what this war's about, and they said uh, at that stage, a 10-pound pom to arrive, they only needed proof of identity, they didn't need a passport, and they said to Dad, where's your passport? And he said, oh, you told me I don't need one. And they said, well, you're not going home without one, so you've got to go via Southeast Asia. So Dad went to fight. He did his two years. He came back, and he was obviously a very different fella and didn't feel like he could really go home to his IRA father, having said he just fought for uh, uh, the colony in um, in Vietnam. Uh, so he stayed in Australia, yeah. and it was Geraldton that really took him in. Geraldton has, as I said, an amazing um, community of Yamaji and, and Sicilian and Greek and, and, and it's a big soccer community and, and Dad sort of got taken under the wing of, of the La Fiamma soccer club there and they became his family in Geraldton. So that's that's sort of the family that I was born into as well. 
And you mentioned the soccer club and mm. the, uh, it being an introduction to the stories that you know, sustained you as a child and maybe taught you to become a storyteller. And I kept thinking of you being you know, the star of The Merger, which, um, which is about <laughs> the Damien Callanan penned film about a, a, t- a football team that's um, populated with refugees in a, in a country town in order to you know, stay in the competition. And it sounds, it sounds like that you had a kind of a childhood experience that almost reflected that diversity in a sporting context. Very much so. I, I love that you picked up on that. That's the reason I took the merger was I went, this was my childhood. And I loved that it was told through the eyes of a child as well. You know, uh, as I said, I was very sick with cancer. And so I was spending all of my time and having chemotherapy and radiotherapy and, 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 and operations in Western Australia's Princess Margaret Hospital in Perth. And it was at a time before hospitals, especially children's hospitals, were very fun. Not that children's hospitals are ever fun, but there's a lot more colour and movement to them now, you know. There's fish tanks and there's colourful walls and they've got playstations and we didn't have that. Meerkats. Meerkats. (laughs) We've got meerkats in Melbourne. You've got meerkats? Wow, what I wouldn't yeah. give to have a meerkat at the hospital. <laughs> we didn't. We just had very stark wards and we had books. But more than that, we had each other. And and we just told each other stories. And because I'd come from a soccer team, a, a family, an adoptive family in a way to that were filled with these incredible stories of Sicily and of Africa and and Yamaji legend. And, like, I could take all of those back to the hospital whenever I went and use them. And I could do the accents too. And I just just learned that if I impersonated certain television shows or characters, uh, the nurses would laugh, the doctors would laugh, my mum and dad would laugh. And the kids around me would laugh and we, we just sort of fed off each other and created our own little imaginative world down there. And our, our hospital became another place. It became a storytelling place. But I could never have told those stories without the soccer team feeding them to me when I went back to Geraldton. And not just feeding me stories, but actually feeding me. I, I got very sick in hospital because I didn't eat. I refused to eat the food because I thought it had medicine in it. And so... When I went back to Geraldton, I would eat and eat and eat crayfish sandwiches and and Sicilian pastas and eggplant parmigiana and and Vienna schnitzels and and just get all of this food into me that that I honestly think kept me alive. It's amazing. It's just an incredible story um, that those first ten years. I mean, did you go through patches where? Where it was touch and go, was it, or were you always sort of looking like you were going to get through? Um, what was the what was the prognosis of this this condition? The prognosis at the start was well, the, the tumor was very advanced when they found it. It was about the size of a football, and we just didn't realize. And it ruptured when I just happened to be in Perth on holiday, and that's how my mum found out because they the doctors said, "Well, as you know, this is a very advanced cancer," and she just said, "I didn't I didn't know." I didn't know she had cancer. I just thought it was a pot belly. Um, everyone thought it was a pot belly. I'd never showed any pain or anything. Around that time as well, it started coming out in the papers that um, that my particular kind of cancer was very common in the children of Vietnam veterans across the world and uh, or American War veterans as they are in Vietnam. So, so that kind of raised a few eyebrows and, and, you know, for my whole life we've been trying to really get to the bottom of all of that. 
we were told that the my fabulous surgeon, Dr. Willoughby, who died about two weeks ago, I think he was about 96, he's just passed away having saved the lives of thousands and thousands of children. He said to my mum, look, if you're going to have any cancer, this is probably a good one to have. <laughs> and he was always optimistic yeah. in that way. It was when I stopped eating that things got dire. Um, I developed kind of that a form of uh, cancer-induced anorexia. Uh, I was just absolutely suspicious of any any food that was put in front of me, and unless I was in Geraldton, so it, that kind of that was a bit tricky, um, and things were a bit touch and go then. Yeah, I hear this sort of um, you know very rounded actorly voice that you've got and it's, uh, you know, it's a beautiful voice and, really uh, and i wonder were, were you um in Geraldton? i sort of imagine people would be kind of have nasal strains are you sort of a trained voice or, or have you always sounded a bit like this no this is so weird because i had this same conversation a couple of nights ago i was at tasma walton's house at, and tasma walton for those who don't know is a, a fabulous actor she's married to Rove McManus and she's from Geraldton <laughs> and uh and we were talking about Rove and my husband Hamish were teasing us about how we've lost our Geraldton accents and we were both kind of a bit put out by it because uh I, I certainly <laughs> I, and Hamish said when Kate goes back to Geraldton she goes the full Gerodero as he calls it uh, <laughs> I guess I, I I think I have lost it uh, just in order to perform and 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 also <laughs> so that people kind of uh, understand me on stage and but I do I do go back I have a very broad accent and my dad was from Nottingham so f- for my childhood I had a Nottingham accent because he taught me to read uh, so I was very you know bar bar black sheep have you any wool yes sir yes sir free bags full kind of accent and then and then it went full gero and now i guess it's it depends on where you get me you put me in front of a microphone though and i'll put on my <laughs> i'll put on my actor voice for you've you got, you've got your rounded vowels it's very nice um <laughs> in terms of university that becomes i guess this is the the meat of the speech belongs at university you're speaking to kids and students and young adults and mature age students who are at university and mm. um, you take them back there to your uni days. Um, mm. This is a this it's a very happy part of the speech. Yeah, it's a happy part of the speech and uh, one that I always remind myself of. Memories I remind myself of, especially as an artist, when we are often told, without getting too political, that we aren't an essential job or that we're not we don't have as much worth as a as a career. Uh, it's it's not true. We're not obviously performing kidney uh, operations like Dr. Willoughby did with me, but we we provide culture and art and and joy and rumination, I guess, uh, in in our in our world. And all of that started for me, obviously, in the in the hospital when I was a child, and with the incredible community that surrounded me in Geraldton. But being able to take that and put it on a stage and having a vehicle to tell our stories was the greatest gift I think I've ever had. But we all have that. We all have or we all should have accessibility to theatre, to art, to culture. And I learnt that more than anything, sitting on the roof of Curtin University, listening to other people's stories, the students around me, as we literally waited for paint to dry, 
You know, we would have painted the stage, built a set on our $65 budget, gone and bought a chook from the coals up the road, found a secret ladder that (laughs) illegally took us onto the roof and we'd sit up there and watch the sunset while the paint dried, eating a chook and talking about each other's lives and then encouraging each other to turn that into a play, to turn that into a song, to turn that into an artwork and and get it out there. And the Heyman Theatre allowed us to do that. You tell this um, quite funny and fast. I love it when a speaker goes into fast, (laughs) rapid-fire details and and this story has fast, rapid-fire details. I I think of it as the electro-punk story of a a play idea happening and you're trying to tell (laughs) the students that action and doing, humans doing, is the imperative here that you have to just keep working and keep producing. Is there anything true about that or was that you just having fun with the possibilities and the sorts of things that you did at university? No, that is all true. All of that is true. We, yeah, you're talking about the section where I'm like, well, we want to put that play, someone says, I want to do this play and I want to set it here and I want to have this in it and I want to have that in it. And it's like an all in, it sounds like the worst soup ever of just stuff. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> Helen of Troy and electro punk. Yeah, 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 it was all of that. And <laughs> and we we did it. We It didn't always succeed, of course. And it was Obviously, we were, I mean, I was 16 when I started university because I missed a grade in primary school. So I was really young. And and so there was a lot of naivety to what we were doing. But there, were, there was also so much hope and so much love for each other. So it was like, you know what? I'm not old enough to get into an electro punk pub to watch you play. So can you put it in my place so I can actually <laughs> see it? And, and know what it is and 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 we just go all in we just support each other and like I said there were no stupid ideas we'd put it in a file for later like maybe the electro punk didn't work for women of Troy but <laughs> it might work for the Sarah Kane that we're doing next year and it did so we would always I mean god the things that we did the things that we did I and I'll never forget because my sister my sister did the same course as me eight years later and she was still finding stuff uh, around Curtin University hidden under chairs and behind seating blocks and in buyer boxes that had come from <laughs> the stories that we'd told, the, you know, like it was a, a fake dead pig in one. <laughs> <laughs> How did you end up with a fake dead pig? Someone's dad worked at an abattoir and they did, they had like a, they got a cast a cast of an actual pig and then we got together and we built the dead pig and it, I mean it's so complicated and I'm so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all at once horrified by what we did but also so bloody proud that this bunch of uh, art students on the hill which Heyman Theatre was on the hill at the time would do this and we would honestly we'd be there 18 hours a day easy easy so whenever I hear the the people say that artists don't have a work ethic it's like oh it could just couldn't be further from the truth we are artists have an amazing work ethic did you have any sense that it's still like that do you feel like the theater students looked at you with kind of open eyes like wow they were the days <laughs> we we didn't have that freedom we could, we're not allowed to climb on the roof <laughs> or or was it more is there a sense that yes comrade we're still doing it and we're going to keep doing it definitely I, there's a new Heyman Theatre now which has been moved to another section of the university and it's not nearly as 
large and it's not nearly as well funded, but it's it's an incredible hub of storytelling. I go there whenever I can to meet the students who are coming through to offer assistance to them. You know, when they get out of university or, or even if they're still in it, they can contact me at any time for advice or to, to have a laugh or to have a cry. Uh, that's my job as the patron of the theatre there and I'm very honoured to, to have that. And I, when I go back, it's the same feeling. And I said this to the to the people who run the, the Heyman Theatre. I said it's, it still feels the same, even though it's in a different premises. It's the energy that you bring into a space that makes it. It's the personalities and stories and characters that that kind of mingle and intermingle around each other and work together uh, that create that space. And it's definitely, I mean, I didn't see any uh, fake dead pig carcasses laying about but I do I do when I'm back I go and see the plays there and they're bold and they're um, kind of heart busting plays because they're coming from a place of such new energy and storytelling and very very important I know that some of the plays that I've seen there will go on to have magnificent lives elsewhere as well and and those ones do come through sometimes they're the ones with the dead pigs but more often they're not they're they're just the ones that come from simple simple storytelling a chair on a stage and someone who's ready to tell a story and more importantly an audience that's happy to listen what was the best thing anyone taught you at curtain you mentioned that you've taken a a great lesson from one of your um favorite playwrights in terms of the imagination bomb but um was there something in acting or in playwriting that you that you learnt at Curtin that's, I mean, there's probably a lot of things, but is there one in particular? There's two. Uh, with with uh, acting, it was take care of your voice. <laughs> and I, I, I'm i very good at taking care of my voice. Uh, but also your, that in that, you, that kind of means yourself. It It's uh, stay active. That's why this uh, is very hard for actors when they're out of work because it's difficult to stay active and, and in performance mode when... There's nothing around, but uh, it's important that we do. As a writer, it was from Elizabeth Jolly, who was my writing teacher, and she said, always stay malevolent, Mulvaney. And uh, <laughs> I had a dark side, I guess, to my writing that she really tapped into. If, and if anyone knows Elizabeth Jolly's life and work, they'll know what I'm talking about. But she uh, she said, once when I came in and I tried to make something a bit more floral, she said, don't do that. Always maintain your malevolence, Mulvaney. And I loved that, that little bit of advice. <laughs> it just, I always take it as just, just keep everything a little bit, uh, a little bit risky, a little bit cheeky, you know, maintain the malevolence, be naughty. <laughs> you often find in commencement speeches, and I read a lot of them for the Speaker on the site, mm. that, um, that people go back to their own graduation and talk about their own graduation day, but you you avoided that. Was, was it a, was it a memorable day? I wasn't there. I was performing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's, that's a real one reason not to yeah, talk about it. Yeah, most of my most of my big days in my life, I haven't been there for <laughs> because they because of performances. Uh, I'm a I'm mostly a theatre actor, and that means we're performing eight to ten times a week. Uh, we usually have Mondays off and people don't tend to have their weddings uh, or their commencement or their graduations on Mondays. Uh, so it means that my graduation certificate got sent to me in the mail uh, many years after I actually had graduated. I, f- I re- realised I'd forgotten to just put in for it and ask for it to be sent. Uh, and when I got it, I was so proud, but I went, God, I could have gotten this years ago and 
and didn't. So I missed out on my graduation, but I did see all the pictures of all of my fellow um, arts grads that day uh, supporting each other with their own families and all getting their photos taken and asking people to take photos of them. And they all went down the pub afterwards and and called me while I was backstage at the show. (laughs) Well, hopefully that's a sign that things went well quite quickly for you after graduation you do it you do insert a little bit I, I call it the the oh, will, oh the places will go bit where you say that things will get tough um mm-hmm. and i think of the famous dr seuss poem mm-hmm. that's often used at graduations the sort of unslumping yourself is not easily done and um that's you have right. that little section about how things are going to get tough was it was it tough early or did you have a, a good run early out of out of university I it was tough. I I wrote, produced and directed shows that I had written at university. I decided to put them on out in the public arena more. So I went I went through the Blue Room Theatre in Perth uh and with their assistance I funded, produced, wrote, directed my own plays. And whilst also a lot working at a Lotto kiosk whilst also being a party girl, one of the party girls at, at McDonald's, you know, the kids' party girls, <laughs> whilst also dressing up yeah. as a bilby at Fremantle Museum and teaching tourists about Australian wildlife, this was my work. I did all of this work in order to fund my own shows. And I look back now at what I was doing and can't believe... <laughs> can't believe I was so bold but also was so I'm so glad I was so bold and that nothing was an issue I had no money but I made I made things ha- happen but I had great people around me um, who who were assisting in that and I guess that's the lesson I've taken away is that um, now I've reached a certain level in my career but throughout it I've always helped I hope um, helped people helped other people like me and especially other people not like me tell their stories and and get access to the arts. So yeah, it was hard. It was very very hard and there were of course times that I felt like I was the worst of my kind in the world, that I couldn't act, that I couldn't write, uh that I was a terrible performer, that I didn't have a career, what was I doing? But I just kept at it and I kept I, I made sure I always checked in with my elders in the industry. I knew that whatever I was going through, someone else had been through this before and I checked in with them and, and got great advice. So that was always a lovely thing to have have around me. Well, one of the great advantages you have, um, and, I, and I, I, I think I've got a little bit as well in the sense I, I got the flick on a commercial comedy show in 2000. I think we lasted only three weeks in prime time. It's oh. almost a a world record, The Late Report. Um, and as the kind of TV career evaporated, I thought, well, I've always wanted to be a writer and writing is really the thing. And and you can you can always write. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter uh-huh. what's going on in terms of the world where, you know, where the industry is going to sustain you. You can always just turn to writing. And was The Seed the first real winner you had in terms of writing a play? Yeah, well, I guess... Con- in context, yes, but really, like one of the first plays I ever wrote that was a success was a play called Fruit Salad that I wrote at high school, and it was about three fruit in a fruit bowl arguing about who was going to be the head of the fruit bowl. It was a political <laughs> observation uh, written from the mind of a 14-year-old Geraldton girl. Uh, 
and and it was a hit and I kept, I remember we had, we had to keep performing it at assemblies and stuff because the teachers loved it and the students loved it that was when I think back I go that was my first real success but right, of course a, so you got to tell us you gotta, which which fruit comes out on top in this in this uh oh none of them because they all get eaten or forgotten <laughs> uh they either rot or they get eaten by a human being doing <laughs> yeah. Um, no so yeah i i certainly i was the watermelon i also performed in, in that and i played a, a watermelon i don't know why i thought watermelon should be in a fruit basket but it was and an apple and a banana um, it was just fun, but I, uh, the, with the seed, of course, I had something far more serious to talk about. I wrote the seed around the time that I found out that my uh, history of cancer and Agent Orange uh, would make it very, very difficult for me to have children, and and was actually told, "Don't, don't even try." Uh, I could get pregnant, but I couldn't have a child, and. That was a massive thing to learn at the in my early twenties, and I felt really angry, really, really, for the first time ever in my life, I felt really um, bitter, angry, defeated, and like I was a domino that had countless other dominoes falling on me because one person in history had decided to flick it years before. Um, I was conscripted to a war that ended six years before I was even born. Yeah. And that was uh, – and I also noticed, obviously, the that one of the dominoes was my dad and one of the dominoes was my mum and, and it goes on and on and on. And I just wanted to speak up for all of those wonderful veterans, their children, their families, not just here but also in Vietnam, that served. And and that's where the seed came from. And it it went on to be, I guess, the play that I'm most known for. I performed in it over 200 times around the country and I, I'm, I'm very, very proud of it and it's still, it's still the one that everyone talks about when I do playwriting conferences or, or, or speeches. Everyone wants to talk about that particular play. It obviously uh, hits a nerve, even if you're not involved in the Vietnam War or, or in uh, war service warfare or if you don't have Agent Orange. It's, it's all about really being in a family that has deeply buried secrets and and I think we've all we can all sort of attest to that in some way somewhere in our family. Well, I've never seen a production, but I'm definitely going to keep my eyes open for it because I imagine it's it's um, it's put on over and over again. No, um, it's not. No, it's not. No, it was it. We put it on Belvoir, uh, put it on, and it toured the country. Uh, but it's and then and MTC had a production as well. But it's a very specific. Play and and in a way, it's it, the lead character Rose has a disability, and so and it's a very specific disability, and so I think it's important that if people do put it on, that they they need to match match that. But it also, you know, one of the characters is ninety years old, yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and and the other character is is sixty, and so it's 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 not normally a demographic that you see on stage, but it's uh, yeah, it's maybe it's due for a. A revival. <laughs> we'll see. I'm, I'm actually working on it as a screenplay at the moment, so maybe you'll see it on the screen sometime soon. Well, that would be fantastic. There's actually on Speak Ola, we've got a speech by um, a writer by by the name of Ruth Clare, who wrote a book called Enemy, oh. uh, bringing the war back home, which 
is, is, is more to do with um, domestic violence and yes. post-traumatic st- stress disorder. But yes. her TED talk that she's delivered on that and, and uh, another one that she delivered for Anzac Day, yeah. she's a, it's, a fan, it's an amazing story and, you know, the lives that people have lived, as you say, and it was very well put, the dominoes fell and you get hit and it's uh, nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you, but it also means you have to turn around to your family and say, hey, how did we get here? How does this? How did this happen to us? Why am I living with this? And sometimes you have to ask the questions that have never been asked of them that they need answered as well. And so the great thing about the seed, of course, and the great thing about the arts is that it brings in audiences. And we had word just must have spread through the Vietnam veteran community and the children of Vietnam veterans community about my play. And it brought in a demographic that we didn't normally see at Belvoir and it was so fabulous to see these families crying and laughing together during the show and in the foyer afterwards and and meeting people who'd come from all over the country in order to see this play that they'd heard about simply because their father was a Vietnam veteran, they were a Vietnam veteran, their grandfather was a Vietnam veteran that their their great grandfather was a war veteran and that and dealing with the with the trauma um through an artistic uh, story storytelling space. Well, one of the reasons I got you on was um I've heard your Philip Parsons lecture, and that's also on Speakola. Um, and I think you're a great advocate for the humanities, and I was really upset to to have the news come through about the cost of arts degrees almost doubling. Um, I think they're going from 20000 to 43500 yeah. um, for a three years humanities degree. Would that affect theatre degrees or is it yes. really more the history, politics sort of side of things? I would say, it would, I mean, I, I don't know the ins and outs, but I'm, I'm almost certain it would affect theatre degrees. But what, what theatre degrees we have left, that is, there are very few... Um, there are very few, <laughs> uh, the, the, or else they've been diminished uh, significantly in terms of content and and hours and and even just being on campus. You know, like I said, we we practically lived on campus, eighteen hours a day, and and we learnt so much from that. It, it's just the devaluing that really. I kind of go, how can you devalue what we do but also double it? <laughs> how does that well, it's, work? It's, it's really a punch in the face. So it's saying yes. that we regard you as the people that are providing noise and opposition and, um, yeah, well, opposition. Mm. It feels as though it's just culture war stuff and it's petty and, it, and it's actually just an interesting time here in Melbourne where nothing is happening. So no. we don't um, – we can watch footy on TV uh, but there's no arts at all, there's no cinemas, there's no theatre, there's no, no music. Um, how does that feel? That's life without it, right? So it's a really – good time to think about what the arts mean that's and, right um, and you know and it's just a shock to, it's, it's just a horrifying really to have this news come through it is and i have to say i separate what our politicians say to what our communities think our community the people in this world know that art is television it's books it's podcasts it's painting it's comics uh, I mean, it could go on and on and on and on and on and if we didn't have any of that particularly at this time what would we be doing? We we have not we haven't got anything to do. How do we know ourselves? How do we share? Even just sitting down and reading your child a chapter of a book at night is art. Is sharing art? Is sharing stories? Now that's 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 in one kind of se- sector of the way we think about arts. 
the other way is the way so many of our politicians and people in power think of it or, or the way that they speak about it is with great fear, like we are rocking the boat in some way, that we are the ones that are causing them some kind of grief. And the thing is, we can all work together. I so wish that, uh, that the I'm not even going to name names because I don't even like saying the names of who I'm talking about, but most people know. If they could just come to the theatres, if they could just watch an Australian film, if they could watch a, support an Australian television series, read an Australian book, tell us what they're reading. I don't believe that these people in power aren't reading Australian books. If they're not, I'm, I'm ashamed of them. And I, or I'm more ashamed of them. But so often I hear about the arts spewing from the mouths of politicians and I never, ever see any of them at our opening nights, whether that be at somewhere like the MTC or somewhere at the old Fitzroy. Uh, working class theatre right through to, you know, the, the more traditional boards, I don't see those people turning up, so I don't know how they can possibly know what the arts is. That, to me, if we're going to use the term un-Australian, that's un-Australian. And Kate, you speak very eloquently on this whole topic in that Philip Parsons lecture, which I really recommend people look up, and it is on Speakola. But in terms of getting back to the one that I got you on to really mm-hmm. talk about, which was the, the curtain lecture, <laughs> the you, had to, <laughs> you had to wrap it up. Um, and you'd you'd done the your life at uni, you'd done the fact that it'll get hard, and you now have to say goodbye. What was the, what did you sort of come up with as a as a conclusion for this one well it was the inclusivity again it was just going how do i wrap this up that was that was the hardest part of the speech was going how how do i wrap up this speech when there is this vast array of artists and humanities students out there people that are going to get out there and in all kinds of arenas change the world and and make us think differently about the world and and use their imaginations and again it came back down to well what's the one combining what's the common denominator between us all and that is our imagination and so I I went through and spent hours and hours and hours I think it was days actually just finding every quote I could about the imagination from every sector that could possibly be in that audience and there was just so I could have used so many but I, I chose the ones I chose because they they were the ones that sort of seemed the most relevant at that at that moment and they're beautiful, um, really well-selected quotes, and it feels as though you're gathering everyone up into yeah. your arms as you uh, enter the final furlong, and then it's really just uh, to say congratulations and chookers, which is what I say to you, because what a speech. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, chookers. Yeah. Chookers, yeah. Isn't chookers a great word? I, I well, love chookers. <laughs> what's the – you said you are into um, – the is it? I always get entomology and etymology mixed up. Is it the etymology? Yeah, the of words? chookers. Um, where's chookers come from? Oh, that's a great story. This, and obviously, there's everyone's got a, a different version of where they think uh, chookers comes from. As is the joy of working in theatre. Everyone has so many different opinions on, on um, where break a leg comes from, for example. But chookers means break a leg in Australia. It's only used in Australia. I think it's used in New Zealand as well, actually, and. And it, basically when uh, Australia, I think it was in the early 1900s when repertory theatre was happening in, in Australia, uh, and the bigger the audience, the better the lunch the actors and crew would get. And a good lunch was considered chicken. Uh, lunch was provided in a repertory day because they were working, rehearsing and then performing, so they were provided lunch. 
And if you got a chicken lunch, that was a really, really, that was a really great thing to get. And someone would always look through the uh, curtain and look at the audience and turn back to the kind of crew and cast and say, it's a good audience. We're having chicken today. We'll have chicken for lunch. And that, in the, in the good old Aussie way, slowly but surely became chookers. Chook, uh, chook for lunch and then it became chookers. So if you say chookers to someone, you're saying, I really hope you get your chicken lunch today. Well, Kate Mulvaney, I really hope you get your chicken lunch today. Or are you not a chicken eater? <laughs> I, I, I love a bit of chook. <laughs> no, I do love a bit of chook. That's right. You're from Geraldton. You're not, you haven't become a, a, a an arts vegan. I would have. Uh, I'm a cra- I'm a crayfisherman's daughter. I I, I have to. I, veganism isn't an option for me, although I have tried it. Yeah, um, maybe it was the dead pig carcass that got me. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. Is there is there anything we're going to see you in on screen soon? Um, is oh, there any way yes. we can check out your work at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the, the only way to see me performing at the moment is to watch uh, Hunters on Amazon Prime. I play Sister Harriet uh, opposite Al Pacino in mm. Hunters, and that's a, it's a show. It's based on real events on Operation Paperclip. In the 1970s, which was uh, which was when it was discovered that Nazis had been smuggled into America to work for some of the top agencies there, and it's about the 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 Nazi hunters that go after these Nazis, and I play Nazi hunter Sister Harriet, a nun with a gun. Wow, and uh, I do have to. Um, you, when in 30 years' time, have you got your El Pacino story that you're going to tell? Um, <laughs> is, there, is there been a moment where you go? Um, Yes. Well, I mean, I worked with him every day for seven months last year, so there's plenty. He is divine. He is everything you'd want Al Pacino to be and a little bit more. He's just the most generous, uh, funny, humble genius. But the brilliant thing is he loves theatre. He loves art. He loves screen. He loves books. He loves performance. He watches Australian films and he... The moment that he uh, found out about my, in particular, my theatre history, we became good buds. So, yeah, just when you watch the show, uh, keep in the back of your mind just what a supporter of the arts that brilliant man is. Oh, well, fantastic to hear. I'll be hitting you up for his email address to see if he'll talk to us about the whole nine yards speech that he delivered. That's on Speakola as well. But, Kate, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. It's a gem of a speech. I'm going to play it shortly. So, Thank you very much. Thanks, Tony, and all the best to everyone out there. Stay safe and well. Humpty Dumpty sat on the slide. Humpty Dumpty was a bit wide. And you have to imagine Humpty stuck on kind of a jumping castle slide. All the king's horses and all the king's sows, all the king's foxes and half the king's cows. Everyone laughed at the egg who was stuck. And Humpty laughed too. Oh, well, rotten luck. In the speech we're about to hear, Kate Mulvaney does explicitly say that picture books are an important form of art. And I've got a new one. It's called Humpty Dumpty Sat on the Slide. And it's the fourth one in my Backstories to Nursery Rhymes series that began with the very successful The Cow Tripped Over the Moon that was released in 2015. 
It was the National Simultaneous Storytime book, as was its successor, Hickory Dickory Dash, and those books were read by more than a million kids across Australia and New Zealand in 2017 and 2018. Well, the fourth one is out. It's called Humpty Dumpty Sat on the Slide. It's also illustrated by Laura Wood, who lives in Milan. Hi, Laura, if you're listening to this. It's available online at all the major retailers. And if you want to buy all four of the hardback versions of those backstories to nursery rhymes and have them personalised and signed to your child, send me an email and I can sort you out for 80 bucks plus postage. Well, it's time for Speech of the Week, and it is, of course, Kate Mulvaney's Humans Doing Speech at Curtin University. This is such a well-structured and beautiful piece of writing. It's got a great shape. Kate's got beautiful pitch and delivery, and it's a masterful commencement. So here it is. Wow, thank you. I would like to acknowledge that we are gathered on Aboriginal land and recognise the strength, resilience and capacity of the Noongar people in this land. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both, both past and present. Good afternoon, Vice-Chancellor Professor Deborah Terry, Acting Chancellor Ms Sue Wilson, members of the University Council, distinguished guests, faculty members, graduates and your friends and families, my mum, Glennis, my sister, Tegan, and dads. Happy Father's Day. It's an absolute joy to be here today to celebrate alongside you the end of one adventure and the beginning of another. It is also a great privilege to have been awarded the Honorary Doctorate of Letters by the Council of Curtin University of Technology as the university celebrates its 50th year of innovation. So, congratulations on making it this far, fellow humanists. As humanities graduates, you are the documenters of the human experience. You are the observers, the scribes, the historians, the educators, the performers, the critics, the architects of culture, communication and community. Without humanists, there is no humanity. And we are at a time where we need more than ever to question what it is to be a human being, what we are human doing, if you will. We need empathy, emotional intelligence, rigorous self-questioning, awareness of our own privileges and powerlessness. But more than anything, as human beings and humans doing, we need our imaginations. And you, sitting here today, have that in spades. And when I talk about imagination, I'm not talking about fairy tales or John Lennon lyrics or glittery wall hangings with imagination printed on them that have been ironically mass-produced in a sweatshop somewhere. I'm talking about our ability as humans to form new ideas and concepts that challenge our own senses and expectations. Imagination is a gift that tends to be scoffed at at this day and age, dampened and diminished. The word imagination is often mistaken for ambition, which it's not. Dreams, which it's not. Infantile, which it's not. Intangible, which it's not. Imagination is an ever-unfurling, ever-developing, ever-challenging, ever-available human trait. And I'm here today to encourage you as you leave your studies to embrace your education, your experience and your ambition, but to always remember the imagination that you have at your beck and call. Wherever you are, whoever you are, no matter what human you're being, no matter what kind of human you are doing. <laughs> I 
I was taught from a very early age the importance of imagination. My country town of Geraldton was a glorious community of cultures. Nyungar, Greek, Vietnamese, African, Indian, all made up my English-Irish dad's original Sicilian soccer team. The stories, accents and ideas that would fly around that team and their families were hilarious and heartbreaking. They challenged the way I saw my small town community and my place within it, and therefore my place within the world. Later, as you've heard, I spent a large portion of my childhood battling cancer inherited from my dad's exposure to Agent Orange in the Vietnam War. In a stark Perth hospital ward in the early 1980s, there were no video games or Netflix. <gasps> no Channel 7 telethons hosted by Basil Zemplis to tell the outside world that we were there. No Make-A-Wish foundations to whisk us away to Disneyland. All we had in that ward were each other, families surviving together. And a hospital ward, like a good soccer team or a good university, also knows no cultural boundaries. It is a microcosm of the world around us, and it too is a melting pot of cultures and faiths, hopes and ruminations, stories and storytellers. It was a ward of human beings doing all they could to get by. And the tales I heard in there from my hospital bed were courageous and compelling and an incredible escape from my family's own predicament. So whether I was at home in Geraldton or in my ward at Princess Margaret Hospital, I learned from these storytellers. And what I learned most was to listen. Listen to the histories, the fables, the truths, the lessons offered by the people around me. A Sicilian grandfather chewing on an olive could take me to his homeland with a wave of his hand. A Nyungar elder could whisper in her ancient language and compel me to know more about this country, its people, my part in their history, and their part in mine. My own father would polish his work shoes and I would see the conscripted Vietnam veteran in him. But most of all, my childhood taught me that imagination is not a plaything, although it can be, of course. But it's not about fairy tales and mythologies. Imagination can take you to wonderful places. Your imagination can relieve your pain. Your imagination can help you work out things about the world that you may not necessarily understand and change the things that you feel are wrong. Your imagination helps you find new ways in, and if you need it, new ways out. It is a deep, extensive, playful, truthful thought process. And when I returned to Perth in 1994 from Geraldton and started my studies at Curtin University, I learned that my imagination could also find me the best friends I've ever had and a career I could only dream of. When I was a student at Curtin University majoring in theatre and script writing, my fellow students and I had a theory that we'd never have to pay off our hex debt because no one would ever employ us anyway. <laughs> and yet we said this as we worked up to 18 hours a day, writing scripts, directing shows, performing in everything from pinter to pantomimes, building sets, ripping sets down, bumping in shows, bumping out shows, literally watching paint dry sewing together costumes, rigging lighting, rewiring soundboards, and telling the great stories from the masterful chroniclers of human history, William Shakespeare, Henrik Ibsen, Dorothy Hewitt, whilst trying so hard at the same time to realise our own. We worked so hard in that theatre on the hill. We'd climb on the roof and watch the sunset while sharing a barbecued chook and some coleslaw that we'd scraped our money together to buy from Karawara Coles. Sometimes we'd sleep up there on that roof when we weren't working a couple of part-time jobs to pay the rent, 
For the record, I sold scratchies and slick picks at the Bull Creek Shopping Centre Lotto Kiosk and also dressed head to toe as a bilby for the Fremantle Museum. That was when I wasn't writing, directing and performing at Curtin's Heyman Theatre. But the point is, we worked. We worked so hard on campus and off. We were human beings doing. All of us have paid off our hex debts, I think, <laughs> just. And I have never met a workforce like the ones I met at Curtin. But it was a workforce that was built on our collective imaginations. Our conversations often went like this. So, I'm going to stage an adaptation of Women of Troy. I have to use the first years as crew and equal amounts of second and third years to fill a cast of 20. I want it to be set in a futuristic underground cabaret lounge with an electro metal band I saw playing at the Rosemount a few weeks ago. We have to do it in the style of Bertolt Brecht to earn credit points. We'll rehearse it for four weeks and it'll run for two weeks in the small theatre at lunchtimes and on Sundays and we have an $80 budget. Who can help me? <laughs> well, I've got Barbara Dennis this afternoon for theatre history. I can see if she has ac access to any Greek translations. My mum's got an awesome outdoor setting we can use. She's in Bali. She won't even know it's gone. <laughs> I can be a reader at auditions if you like. I need the practice. Oh, I play electro metal. I'll be happy to play for you. I just have to get Sunday off work. I'm not sure about the idea. Maybe it shouldn't be Women of Troy. Maybe you should try writing something yourself. Remember that story you told us about your grandma from Saigon? And so on and so forth. The sun would set, the paint would dry, the sets would go up, the sets would come down, the audiences were tiny, sometimes just small. The plays got better, I promise, because our imaginations were allowed to expand and shift and develop as we challenged ourselves and one another. Now, my job is no different. I am a proud, professional imaginer. Every day I get to sit down and let my mind run wild with the stories I want to tell, the things I want to say, the dialogue I want to have with an audience and therefore the world. I started imagining as a little girl and I learned to hone it at Curtin. And there is not a day that goes by that I don't use something that I learned at Curtin in my work. Here today, we have graduates from culture and creative arts design, education, and built environment. You are the innovators of this country's future, not of tomorrow anymore, but today. And I'm so, so thrilled for you all. You are going to create and change and conceive and hatch all manner of enterprises. But while that's all happening, you're gonna fail. You'll be afraid, you'll change your mind, you'll be broke, You'll be broken, you will be uninspired, and you will lose heart. But don't be scared. You're prepared. You have the toolkit right here, right now, inside and all around you, I promise. And it all starts with taking a really deep breath and saying to yourself those magic words, imagine if I dot, dot, dot. Imagine if we dot, dot, dot. As you leave today, please take the time to say thank you to the educators that encouraged you, the classmates that inspired you, the family and friends that supported you. This is important because your imagination can sweep you away, but so can life itself. So make sure you take the time to take the time. 
And just so you don't think I'm some strange Willy Wonka-style woman standing up here extolling a world of pure imagination theme as all you need to get through, I'm going to borrow from the great imaginative thinkers who might better pertain to you to back up what I've said. For the architects and builders and shapers of our environment out there, I offer you this from Frank Lloyd Wright. Architecture is the triumph of human imagination over materials, methods, and men to put man into possession of his own earth. For the designers amongst you from Mark Twain, you cannot depend on your eyes if your imagination is out of focus. For the educators among you, and I'm particularly in awe of you because my mum was a teacher for 45 years and I saw firsthand the changes she made to lives. I'm going to quote from that other wonderful teacher, Elizabeth Jolly, you might have heard of her. I want you to imagine how marvellously, malevolently mischievous you can be in order to tell me your story. For the performers out there from Anonymous, if you get scared, just imagine your audience naked. <laughs> For the writers among you from Shakespeare, my personal favourite, the poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shape and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Such tricks hath strong imagination. And for all of us here, no matter who you are, logic will get you from A to B, imagination will get you everywhere. Albert Einstein. Congratulations all, chookers, as we say in the theatre, go out there and be human beings doing. Never stop learning, never stop listening. I wish you the best in life, but I imagine you'll have even more. Thank you. Well, that's it for another episode of the Speak Ola podcast. Thank you, Kate Mulvaney, for being such a wonderful guest and for allowing us to share a beautiful speech. Thank you to my friends at Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados for continuing to support the show. Lovemyavocados.com.au Thank you to anyone who's written a review on iTunes for this podcast. It really helps push us up through the rankings. And double thank you if you've told a friend about the show. I do do some Speakola segments on Australian radio. On Melbourne ABC Radio, I speak to Sammy J at 6.35am every second week. And on the alternative weeks, I do a similar segment on Canberra ABC. Radio. There are nearly 3,000 speeches on speakola.com itself, so check out the website and suggest or send us a speech. Thank you, David Bridie, for the theme music. Thank you, Declan Fay, for some tech support. And thank you, Damien Callanan, for putting me in touch with Kate Mulvaney. Stay safe, everyone, everywhere. May you be the best socially distant, mask-wearing incarnation of yourself that you can be. Until next time. Yeah, that, that'll be fine, I reckon. You're right. Was it 2017? Wow. Yeah. I didn't realise it was, It was uh, yeah, my April, May, June, July, August. Yeah, Dad had been dead six months. Yeah. Wow. Excellent. Oh, not yeah. excellent. Horrible. No, well, did he die from Agent Orange-related um, things as well? 
Possibly. Look, he died of uh, esophageal cancer, which is an Agent Orange-related illness, but he was also a smoker. Right. Um, but he he was, yeah, I, I don't think it would have helped the situation having that in his, in his system. And how old was he? But, uh, 69. Oh, he was so fit and he was a soccer player and he was a crayfisherman and he built roads and he was a really fit little British bulldog, you know, and yeah. it just... It just slayed him. It was awful to watch. But, uh, yeah, I was doing Richard III at the time uh, at, at the Opera House performing as Richard III and it was going flying back on my days off to, to see him. And, uh, talk, God, talk about speeches. The, the final time I saw him, I knew it was going to be the final time that we would ever see each other. Um, oh, and he was my best mate, so I got to... I wrote him a six-page speech <laughs> about. So could he not talk? And you, so it was you talking to he him. He could talk, or? kind of. He he could. T- he had taken over his brain by that stage. He was having a good day. So Mum said, "Do it now. Do it now. Do it now." And I was about to get on the plane home, and I, I managed to. He he read some of it, and I read some of it, and it was a six-page speech kind of um, letter to him, and. I'm so glad I wrote it. I was so grateful that I was a writer and I could string some words together. And I'm so glad that he could understand what I said. That's the most important speech I think I've ever given was that to my dad. And then he he died two days later. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Did you keep the thing running for that? <laughs> <laughs> did I? Yes, yeah. I did actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I don't know if I can cut it in, but it's nice.